This episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson has been sponsored by Sarah Myerscough Gallery. The gallery represents leading international designers, makers and artists focusing largely but not exclusively on wood and centred extensively on material-led processes. Extraordinary sculptural design pieces come from the likes of Peter Marigold and Gareth Neal, as well as former guests on this podcast, Eleanor Lakelin and Laura Ellen Bacon, that work on ambitious sculptural pieces in both wood and willow. If you'd like to see the work of the gallery's artists this autumn, then visit the Pad Fair in London from the 2nd to the 6th of October, the Salon Fair in New York from the 14th to 18th November, or Marcin Ruschak's solo presentation at Design Miami in December. Meanwhile, Crop, the gallery's new exhibition taking place in its Barnes headquarters, opens on the 26th of October, so get those dates in your diary. For more details on the shows and artists, go to www.sarahmyerscoff.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. In each edition of this podcast, I talk to a maker, designer, artist, or architect about a material with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. I currently find myself sitting on a Dutch barge on the River Thames, which acts as a studio for the extraordinary artist Kate Maguire. Kate's sculptures are both beautiful, but more than a little unsettling. She has created work from wishbones and hair, but she's best known for her pieces made of feathers, which she finds from farmers, gamekeepers, and pigeon racers. They often appear to spill out of unexpected places, a pipe in a basement, an upturned bucket, or even a fireplace. The materials she uses, she has said, draw us in with their iridescent beauty. They are seductive, and yet we are repelled by them at the same time. Kate's graduating piece was bought by Charles Saatchi, and he's been a supporter ever since. She's exhibited across the globe, and in 2018, she was the winner of the Royal Academy of Arts Jack Goldhill Award for Sculpture. Kate, thank you very much for doing this and inviting us onto this extraordinary barge. Well, you've chosen a good day for it. Yeah, well, the sun is shining. There's only the odd plane coming overhead. So, yes. uh, so yeah. Well, I mean, can we talk, start by talking about the, the studio? Um, why a boat? Well, it's very intrinsic to my, my life, I suppose. Um, I was born on a boatyard in Norfolk. My father was involved with boat building. Um, he'd moved from London and he, he sort of changed life completely got married, had children, and decided to, to move to Norfolk, knew nothing about it. Norfolk people do not welcome you unless you've been there for at least 10 years. <laughs> so I think they struggled slightly initially, but he was working for this boat, boat building company, and we had a house there, and we regularly fell in the river. And, and um... So he was a boat builder? Well, he was involved with it. Right. Um, we had our own boat that he um, that he did up, and I just remember walking around and watching people making things all day mm. long. It was um, really important for, mm. for my my sort of you know just fascinating. You you could make anything. Mm. And were you making as a child? Collecting a lot of collecting right. of pebbles and feathers and bits and pieces. And my my family and my parents always commented how. I would be the one seeing the vole in the, the reeds or the you know the bittern that mm. nobody else could see. I was going, no, it's there, it's there. And so I was very observant, I suppose, as a child and mm. collected everything. And you still have this sense of collection here. I mean, maybe we can describe a bit the, 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 the space we're inhabiting. You have okay. these boxes of quite, well, marked right-wing pigeon. And uh, can, can you talk the listeners through what, your, your studio a little? Yes, yeah, so um, the barge, the main space in the barge is um, eight metres long and three and a half metres wide 
Uh, but then it sort of has a shelf that goes under, and under the decks and so I can store stuff in there. So there's lots of shelves. And um, when I'm making work, if I want to work efficiently and, and quickly, the feathers have to be sorted really, really well. And I have assistance for that. And so each box, I have Perspex boxes here that um, contain each type of feather and each size of feather and, and organized into whether they curve to the right or curve to the left. <laughs> Um, of course, you've got, I, you know, on a wing of a bird, you've got, on the right right wing, it would be, they would curve round to the right. Right. So that um, on each bird, you have an equal number of feathers on mm. each side. So, yeah, um, it, it just, I don't want to be picking up a feather and realising it's not curving the right way for me. So I'm, so we sort quite... Um, carefully yeah assiduously i mean yeah. it really it really looks it and i mean the word that keeps pinging out i mean there's, there is goose but there's a lot of pigeon yeah um can we talk a bit about well but first of all let, let's talk about why feathers okay so i have always been inter interested in natural materials and and collecting so collecting hair or collecting bones or skulls or you know, animal skulls little little skulls um and when I first bought this barge, um, it was moored in Hampton and on, a, on an island that was sort of semi-derelict. Um, there was industrial working units. In fact, it reminded me really of where I was brought up. Because right. you've got people making things, you know, you've got wood turner, you've got a, a guy who de decommissions guns, you've got boat builders. You've got so is that why you chose it? Yes. Yeah, it was just this brilliant sort of space. If I wanted to have, you know, if I needed to have a... A, an armature made there was a guy that could mm. make it mm. in the in two units away and it was this great community so um but the building next to my unit um was completely open to the elements and there were pigeons flying in and out of it a huge great big warehouse where they used to be build motor torpedo boats during right. the war and um as I walked down to the studio each day, you know, at certain times of the year, April and October, the birds molt naturally, and these feathers would just be like spinning down to the floor, like a sycamore key mm. would do. <clears throat> and so I started picking them up, and after a couple of weeks, I had quite a few, and then I realised that I'd like to make something with them, but I didn't get enough there. So, how do you do that? I like projects that give me a give me a sort of a brainstorming opportunity. So, how do you get? How would you get? Uh, you know, ten thousand pigeon feathers um, in a quite short space of time. How do you get ten thousand <laughs> pigeon feathers in a short space of time? So I thought, okay, racing pigeon people are the only people that right. keep pigeons in captivity, and so I started ringing rounds. I rang the the uh, racing pigeon society, British Racing Pigeon Society, and talked to the general manager and he was thought I was completely mad, but he gave me a whole list of, of different clubs to, to approach and people he thought might be um, amenable to the idea. So then I'd ring up these guys and you know, invariably they were you know, over 60, um, working class, um, didn't really, probably had never been to London sort of people. Mm. Um, and they're a fascinating group of people that, you know, keep these pigeons. They they race because they love the pigeons, but also because they win money from it. And I suddenly sort of got involved in this brilliant um, and quite diverse um, group of people. 
and I'd ring them up and I said, explain what I wanted to do. And then I'd send them drawings and, um, and send them a Samson's addressed envelope and they would send me the feathers back. Mm. And some of them arrived and they're absolutely beautiful. They'd been sorted into different varieties and they'd obviously done it very, they'd done it very carefully. And others arrived and they were covered in poo. <laughs> Um, and they go straight into my freezer. I've got a big chest freezer and they would go straight into the freezer to make sure they don't have any mites or anything like that right. in them. And um, yeah, within months I had thousands. Because I mean, many people think of pigeons as obviously a kind of vermin. These people, mainly men, you just obviously have a, a profound love of, of oh, the Oh, they animals. absolutely and adore them, yeah. This, this notion, this, this kind of tension there, I mean, this is something that, there's a tension in, in your work. Yes. I mean, is this what drew yeah. you to pigeons particularly? Yes, because they're regarded as rats with mm. wings and disgusting, and but they're just a bird. I mean, why why put that sort of reputation solely on one bird? It's just mm. like you know, let's. It's, it's an easy category to sort of despise, and I rather like that sort of look. These things are actually really beautiful. You and and people would see what I was making and go, oh, that's phenomenal, that's really beautiful, incredible. What sort of bird is it? And I'd say pigeon, go, how could you possibly <laughs> touch it? But what is the difference between a crow or a pigeon? There's mm. no, no difference. Mm. They are both wild birds. They both live in urban environments. No difference. Mm. And was there a point where you realised that, that feathers was, was going to be, you know, very much a predominant part of your, your work, I wonder? Was, was there a moment where you went, oh, this is really working well? I don't think I don't know that any artist does that, mm. but certainly not. I I am still fascinated by what they can do, and I will probably move on to a different material at some stage. But I haven't finished with it yet, sort of thing. <laughs> so I'm constantly thinking, oh, I could do that with it, or oh, I haven't used that type of thing before. So um, no, I I mean before before I was working with feathers, I had done um, my degree show um, installation at the Royal College of Art from 24,000 wishbones, which had the similar sort of problem with collecting. So I'd had friends give me wishbones over the years and then approaching my degree show, I wanted, I knew I needed lots and I'd been given this phenomenal wall and I was determined to fill it. And um, it, you know, I, I marked it out into meter square and then realized I need 400 per square meter. And then, oh my God, I need 27,000 or something. So then that was, you know, how do you get wishbones? Mm. So catering meat suppliers um, in Spitalfield Market, contacted them, said, could you, could you cut them off? I mean, when you're, you, when you're boning meat, could you just cut them off? So I would end up with boxes delivered to the, to the warehouse at Spitalfields full of wishbones, about 9,000 per week. And I would take those away and they were covered in flesh and I'd be boiling them up and cleaning them and drying them on my kitchen table. Lovely. <laughs> so, you know, I'm using, I'm using, always using materials that you can't actually buy. Yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting because you, you, you indicated there that the, uh, the space that you had on your graduation show at the Royal College affected the work that you did. Yes. Does the space you have here affect what you can make or create? Well, it's, it's. It does, and that I find frustrating, actually. Mm. Um, it, it's been a fantastic studio space to work in, and everything I've made, I've made in here. And I make things that are like nine metres long. My studio is only eight. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. um, so it always um, requires a, a sort of architectural brain to sort of way of thinking, let's say, to 
think about how I can make something that will go through a 70 centimetre wide door but will fill a mm. volume of space mm. within a gallery or historic house or something like that. So, so skipping back a bit, I went, went to college to do fine art as a mature student aged 32 or something. But before that, I'd been doing interior design. Well, I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Because, I mean, yeah. obviously, if we can skip back even further since, we, mm. since we're doing yeah. that. But, so you grew up in Norfolk. Yeah. Were you always going to be creative? Yes. Um, that, was the, the, that was the only thing I felt happy doing. Um, yeah, um, I did O-level art um, and did well at that and... Then was going to do A levels and didn't didn't fare so well on the, what, in the first what term. Happened? Well, I don't think you really want to know that one. <laughs> anyway, I was skiving school, doing appalling things, and my parents found out and I got into lots of trouble. And luckily, they saw that it wasn't I wasn't sort of fulfilled by school, and so they either got fed off of me and sent me to Paris for a year as an au pair. Right. So that's quite a culture change, moving from rural Norfolk to, you know, the, the big metropolis, right? I know, I know. It, was, it was bizarre. And first of all, I lived in, in Versailles, so I would walk around with a pram, this entire, you know, stately home and gilded, you know, everything gilded. It was just, I'd never been anywhere like that before. It was just such a shock. Mm. And then I got a job in Paris and um, I was on the Rue de Varennes, which is like Downing Street of... of um, London and um, the Rodin Museum was at one end and I would go into the Rodin Museum with a pram for free every single day and look at the gates of hell. I mean, can you imagine that <laughs> at 16, they being my sort of, my sort of, um, my sight. Everything, every day I would see that and the Pompidou Centre you could go into and all these things you could go into for free then. Mm, mm. Um, so it was astounding and I just walked around and walked around I just saw so many amazing things and the couple that I worked for they um, sold chateau and so I was accompanying them to these beautiful buildings I mean it was just phenomenal so I suppose my my interest in architecture and design really started right. in Paris so then you decide to, to be a designer yes well I wanted to be a fine artist but my parents always, always um, but my parents wouldn't countenance me going to mm. art school. Um, so they would support me to go to design school and learn a trade, uh, effectively, but not to do fine art, which has always been a bit of a bone of a contention, <laughs> really. Because I sort of think, well, I, you know, I only really started properly, I only graduated finally from the Royal College when I was 40. Yeah. So were you deeply unhappy as a designer? Um, I liked the design aspect of it, but of course that's not it, is it? It's the business side of it, it's the meetings, it's the money, it's the... I mean, you have an element of that, of course, mm. as an artist, you have to deal with all of it. But, you know, ordering furniture or lighting or whatever to arrive on time for it to, you know, not delay a project and to coordinate all of those things is not great for somebody that's dyslexic. Yeah. So I struggled with that and I would get, you know, you, 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 I would be working on small, small-ish projects doing it myself. So I was, you know, I maybe had two staff at the time, um, but it, the buck would stop with me and, and you'd get penalised if a sofa didn't arrive yeah. on time. You know, yeah. that's, and 
and then they'd use that as a reason not to pay you your full amount of money. So I found it deeply frustrating and um, not very fulfilling. I mean, it's 5% design and the rest is organisation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's not really... Yeah. I mean, you, you talked about um, being dyslexic and this is something that's come up in this podcast before. Yeah. But I'm wondering if, if that's... Is that why you found school difficult? Yeah, and, and it wasn't picked up then. I mean, believe it or not, my mum is a primary school teacher and she she literally thinks that people don't have dyslexia there. It's just a way of right. classifying thick people. <laughs> and um, and she still thinks that to this day. Um, and so, you know, I went to the Royal College at, at 38. And on the first day they said, you know, if you have problems with finding rooms at the right room, um, or the right time, or writing notes in lectures, or writing essays, or losing your keys. Come and see us, you know, the dyslexia person. And she tested him, tested me, and I scored 98% in nonverbal reasoning, and 2% in verbal. Right. And that's the first time you knew at I the age first of time at 38. Wow. And all the time I, before that, I had avoided writing because I felt I was mm. incapable of it. Mm. Mm. So... It was a, you know, I was really happy in a way that there was a reason for that. People, I mean, I've spoken to numerous people over the years because there is a high proportion of designers and artists who are, yes. are dyslexic. And the thing that comes up time and time again is that they kind of see the world in a different way. Hmm. Um, do you, I mean, is that something that you, you feel, that you can see things that maybe other people can't? I think that's... that becomes evident by what they say rather than what you know because yeah. it, this is what you this is how I live my life and how I see my life but is other people saying well I wouldn't have I wouldn't have noticed that or I wouldn't have seen it that way hmm. um, which is it's fascinating isn't it and, and and if it can be thought of as being a plus not a negative I think that's great and that was the beginning of my sort of feeling good about myself actually um, when I went to Royal College. That's so, interesting. Um, so, you know, I, I thrived there. Because you've been to Farnham before. Yes. And was, was there a, a moment when you were a, a trigger that you just said, I'm a designer, it's not making me happy, I need to go and do yeah. what makes me happy? Well, I had, I'd, I'd done, I did my interior design degree and I'd worked until I was about, I suppose, 28, 29, non-stop with that. And then I, I, I had my first son and I was carrying on doing projects, going up to Manchester doing that. That was sort of tricky trying to time things because building sites, you're meant to be there at eight o'clock in the morning when mm. you've got kids, it's difficult. But I carried on doing that, and, but I was doing evening classes of, of life drawing. And so got to, um, I was about 32, I suppose, at the time. And I thought, oh, I'm going to, I had, I was pregnant with my second son and I thought, well, maybe this is a time to go and do a degree and then I can do it part-time, look after kids, do a degree part-time. So I did that at Farnham and I remember the interview and I was sort of six months pregnant and they said, nobody has done this degree and finished it and been, you know, had children. So you've got a place, but it won't work. Mm. And of course that was a red rag to a ball. <laughs> I'm going to make it work. <laughs> and actually it was brilliant because, you know, I mean, you, when you're a new mother, you're sort of catapulted into looking after little things. It's fantastic, but it doesn't necessarily fulfil you mentally. Mm. So I had college to think about two days a week, and I was much happier looking after kids than I had been 
to sort of do those two things together. I was sort of constantly thinking that I'd put them to bed and I'd work on my stuff. And, and I feel very proud of the fact that I was the only person out of 800 students that year in Farnham to get first. Wow, wow. Because uh, I think I saw your piece, you had a retrospective at the Harley Gallery yes, last year. Yes. And I think you had your graduating piece from Farnham. Yes, there with the, it's yes. kind of 10 foot or eight foot dress of, yes. made of cable ties. Cable ties and, and, and like a blanketing material, yeah. yeah. Was that typical of your, your work at that time? Um, I suppose so. I mean, I did quite a lot of animation, um, mm. um, stop frame animation with a Russian clockwork camera. Everything was fleshy and um, bristling, slightly angry, and um, I loved it. I loved, I loved that. That period of time it was fantastic to experiment. Well, it's quite interesting because there is this, this, I mean, we talked about it in the introduction. Uh, your work has this kind of uh, contradiction or tension within it where it is beautiful, but it's also slightly dark. There's a bit of early David Cronenberg, I always think about, about <laughs> what it is that you do. Yes. And, and it's, uh, it's about the body, but there's mythology in there as well. Yeah. And, you know, what, I mean, I, I'm wondering, what, what is it about that slightly unsettling aesthetic that you like? Where does um, that come from? Well, I, I like to use sort of ordinary prosaic materials and twist them. Um, I mean, I suppose inspired by people like um, Mona Hatoum and Merit Oppenheim. Um, a lot of female artists actually mm. work with that sort of, with those stones. I mean, they're not, you know, not shoving it in your face, but it, it's a subtle changing of tension with the material, which was fascinating. Um, so, yeah, I'm... I didn't quite. Well, one of the one of the pieces from that show was um, a baby's vest, you know, a newborn baby's vest, and it was slashed like like the decoration you'd find on a. It's called pinking and shearing, I think, on a on a Tudor garment mm. where the the um, there's a very valuable fabric on the inside and a more man, mundane fabric on the outside, and it's pushed through, so you get these sorts of. Um, cuts with this other fabric coming through you see them at the V&A and I made an animated film with that so you've got these things that look like their tongues coming through these these sort of um, slashes within the garment and I, I was just playing it was fantastic I really enjoyed mm. it <laughs> yeah I mean was there a benefit of being older when you went oh, to yeah. particularly yeah. the Royal College I'm, yeah. I'm wondering because it's quite well, a hot house I presume it's very competitive um, really competitive, mm. and it was quite funny, really, because you know the youngsters think they're the bee's knees, <laughs> and and they sort of you know they politely sort of um, tolerate the older lot, thinking that they're you know um, more exciting, maybe. Yeah. And you know, I just sort of ploughed my furrow and just sort of just did my own thing without anyone. I mean, I I because I had kids, I was getting in really early in the morning. And I would probably leave by three, and a lot of people wouldn't arrive until three, and they'd work into the evening. So a lot of quite a lot of the time, there was no one in the studios, right. which was fantastic actually for, you know, quietness. Although one of the things I did find difficult at the Royal College is I'd at, the, at Farnham I'd been a part-time student, so I'd done everything at home, um, and hadn't got a studio space at Farnham. So you catapulted into this fantastic studio space. I didn't know how to make work with people around. Right. So that was quite difficult. And I would still carry on making things at home right. quite a bit of the time. Yeah. And where did the wishbones... Because you, you seemed to leave the Royal College in, what, 2004, I think yeah. it was. Um, kind of 
possibly because you're a bit older when you went, but but seeming fully formed. I mean, you had this piece that was bought by Charles Sarchi, the, the the wishbone. Yeah, crazy. Um, where did the idea for the wishbones come from? Um, oh, I can't remember. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose it's this, you know, an object that has a something, a, a belief system that mm. that runs alongside it. That is a, and I, I looked into the history of why we we broke the the wishbone as a sort of sign of luck and it was a pagan thing that instead of it being a luck thing it was who was going to get married next and it's been changed over time to be you know, who gets the luck right and it was the symbol of the wishbone is the pudenda and so you're breaking the virginity right when you break the wishbone so it's the person that gets that will be the next person to get married so it's been sort of bastardised across, the, and I'm really fascinated by the fact that materials and mythology and and you know things that we we believe in everyday sort of you know, household stuff is is has been bastardised, and we don't really know where it comes from. And I think that's quite an interesting. Because that sense of, I mean, there, there are several things that seem to run through your work, and, and maybe we can touch on some of those now. I mean. The first thing is, is particularly your site-specific stuff, hmm. is this notion of the feathers kind of spilling out of yeah. pipes, which, I mean, we're on the water. Presumably, there's some it's all kind about, of relationship. It's all about it. the water. I mean, the, hmm. the, I, I swim in the river every day. I, um, I'm absolutely connected with that. But I absolutely know that it's really, really treacherous. So I'm very careful of it. And, and that's... That idea that you can be in the water and you can be dragged down, and mm. that it is a dangerous thing, is is in the work. You know, it it is this this un undertow that will um, could kill you. You mm. know, it's a it's a sort of a treacherous thing. It's beautiful patterning that exists within a second and then it's gone. Um, but it also, if that that is happening, if that patterning is happening, there's something more um, energetic going on than underneath and it could drag you underneath so it is that that beauty and that that danger which um, fascinates me really mm. and also mythology that I mean, you talked about the pagan uh, research that you did for the the wishbone pieces yeah. this, this this mythology interest in it seems to have continued throughout I mean the, the serpent I guess I'm thinking yes. particularly yeah. in, in the vitrine pieces that you yes. do but I don't really regard it as a, only as a serpent right so it is serpent like but bodily yeah. and then if you go to um, in, in all museums across the world you'll see Greek and Roman sculptures that have depict creatures that are half man, half beast, that will have a, a winged serpent or a, um, a minotaur or something that is a hybrid creature that is not one or the other. And they, these things are deep set in our history and in our mind, but we don't believe in them. Mm. But they believe, you know, across the centuries, it's been the same. There's a belief in something other than what we know is real. So I think that's quite. Um, an interesting thing and, and you go back and look at architecture throughout centuries and it always has this sort of element of these otherworldly creatures mm. and there's also this uh, kind of sense of agglomeration in your work you're taking small objects whether it's feathers or wishbones yeah. and you're making something significantly larger with them 
yes. Um, that, uh, I mean, that is the, the sort of, it's, it's mixed up. I, I don't think there's any one reason for doing that. So, um, like um, a starling and a murmuration, you have, you know, the one is not remarkable, but altogether it is. And, and the massing of something, the massing of sand and how it moves, or the massing of, um, think of other materials, um, their movement can be incredible en masse. And um, with, the, with the feathers, I'm working on this piece over here that, that is with um, uh, pheasant fe small, um, colourful pheasant feathers. And I will group together the same sort of patterning. So over here, you've got ones that have very red and dark areas with them. Right. And then here you've got... Uh, they're called cathedral windows, I think, the, the, the shape of those feathers. And so I can create different currents in the, in the work by, by grouping and, and the direction of the, of the feathers together. And then you'll create really intense parts with tiny little feathers. So I don't know where the, the sense of patterning has come from for me. Um, I'm... I'm emulating nature but you can't repeat it you can't make work that's mm. better than nature in mm. a way i always study the structure of a wing or the way that the feathers lie on the bird and i'm trying to emulate that so that you feel the viewer feels that they are believable in some way um, it's very important to me that the, the feathers are placed on a on the sculptures in the same sort of distance that they would be seen on the bird and then, then you have this sort of leap of faith that you understand, that you believe that you, um, there is a sort of realness about the work. Of course, it's not a bird and it's not trying to be a bird, but it has an element of that that makes you sort of understand it. We, we understand and we know so much that, that we're bringing to a sculpture, or we're bringing to an object that when you see it, and so if I, if I did put feathers out of, out of sequence or out of um, patterning, you'd, that would be the first thing you'd see and you'd mm. notice. Mm. So for me, it's really important to get that patterning absolutely perfect. That, and I, I will, I'll be making a piece of work and I'll realise that a feather right down at the bottom is wrong. It's the wrong colour or it's the wrong shape or whatever. And I'll go back and replace that because that's the thing my eye is being drawn to. Mm. The body comes up. Quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, you did you know, in your earlier work. You'd done uh, films where you filmed your son's milk yes. teeth yes. becoming adult teeth, and yes. you filmed your own hair growing. Yeah. Um, and the fascination from the body with the body. What is that about? Well, I mean, there's a there's a passage. I'm not religious. I hasten to add, but there's a passage in the Bible that says every hair on your head is numbered, and um, and. Every hair follicle is exactly the same distance apart in each head, you know. And and when you look at spiral, hair spirals, they're just absolutely fascinating, the, mm. the patterns. And I, I remember talking to this primary school teacher who said on the first day of each, each year, she would go around the heads of the children and see who's got a double crown, and she knew that they would be trouble. <laughs> um and in with with teeth, for example, and they're exactly like the the wings of a, a bird, 
teeth, uh, if a, a dentist was to look at a child's teeth and where they were falling out, he would know exactly where it is in the, um, the, re the teeth replacement um, system because they fall out in exactly the same system, mm. uh, order each mm. time. And the same with the bird's wing. It will, the same order of feathers will fall out. So a, a pigeon racing enthusiast would open the wing of a, of a bird to see whether it can do the race or not and to check to see where it is in its, its molt. Mm. Because if, if, they've, if they're too far gone in the molt, they can't, they can't race. They have to wait for the feathers to come back in before they can race again. These pigeon uh, races that you, you deal with, mm. do they come and see your work? Yes, yes. And we're actually hoping to do something up um, at, in, in Leeds soon right. where, where we're combining the sort of... I get letters from them saying, I've won you know, three races this year and they send me a photograph of them holding the cup. And, um, <laughs> or, my, or my wife has um, become poorly, so I'm, I can't keep my birds any, anymore and I'm going to give them to... Wilf down the road, and he will continue to send you feathers. So it, it is, it's, um, it's lovely, actually. I've been working with the same group of people for about 12 years now. I think I saw that you give them a Christmas present every year. You make, yeah. you make something for make them. Make something for them. It's nothing massive, but, it, you know, it would be either a, a tea towel or something that, that has the life cycle of, of a pigeon feather with them, with them sending it to me and mm. me sending it back to them and, and um, the letter and everything and the sculpture. I always send them drawings of what I make um, and photographs of the finished objects. And so, yeah, it's And do they good. report back and say, that's, <laughs> that's odd, what no, are you doing with my birds? No, no, I think they're, they're quite, I mean, I, one year I sent them a, a calendar with, a, you know, every month a different picture of, of a, a piece of work that I'd made with pigeon feathers. Um, no, it's 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 a nice relationship, I think. Um, and I have had a few people come to London to see um, shows, but I'm hoping in the Leeds, with, if we do something up at Leeds, that there'll be more because most of them are based up in North of England. Right. What are you doing up in Leeds? You're just looking at the moment? Or? Um, I'm doing a show at Harwood House. Okay. And um, next March. Right, and they that is their fiftieth and no, fiftieth anniversary of their bird garden, and um, so they they're going to do bird related pieces. You also enjoy the site specific nature of of what it is you do. Mm. So working as an interior designer certainly has given me the ability to see it three three dimensionally and and work um, drawing up plans and things like that, which possibly I wouldn't have been able to do if I mm. hadn't done that job beforehand. Um, so, for example, Tatton Park, where I did uh, Tatton Park Biennial, um, they only, I only had three days to install, so I had to make everything in the studio here and then take it up. So we made a replica of, the, of, of a sort of range, big cooking range uh, in the kitchens of um, Tatton Park uh, on the bank here. And then, um, then I carved everything to fit that replica and then slotted it into mm. the replica, the, the original mm. um, oven there, and everything fitted. Wow, wow. <laughs> and, and, you know, to only have three days to install on a piece that was probably 10 metres across was, um, you know, quite a challenge. So, presumably with that Tatton Park project, are you, are you drawing how this piece is going to come out of the, the 
um, the oven or, yes. or how does that, yeah. Yeah, so I do lots of before drawings. Before you start, yeah. Before I start, yes. I mean, with that one, I had to build um, my armature effectively to fit this this range because it went from the floor up up to different levels, uh, you know, up to three or four different levels within this oven. So um, that all had to be done. Even to order my materials, I had to I had to do that. Mm. 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 Can we also talk about you've done this this uh, strand of your work, which is in vitrines, yeah, uh, kind of a bit Victoriana almost. Yeah. Um, but the pieces they they completely fill the vitrine, almost like they want to burst out. Yes. So that, that I always try and make the work as close to the glass as possible. I want the glass to look like it's it's the or the the enclosure is the thing that's dictating the shape, so that the work is almost um, writhing around within the space trying to get out. It's intestinal. It's um, strong, muscular. It is a moving form, um, in my mind, um, and the the enclosure is the thing that is stopping it doing that. And I know that. So the, the, the installation work where it's spilling out, the architecture is the thing that is informing that. And within the cabinet work, it's the cabinet pieces that are, the cabinet um, enclosure itself is the thing that is dictating the work in a, in a sense. Mm. And you know, unlike quite a few artists who, who have the idea and then hand it to a fabricator to, to make mm. their work, mm. uh, the making process seems very important to what it is that you do. Yeah, I I liked. I mean, majority of this. I don't do all of it um, myself. I I carve all my forms myself. And if I don't do it on the large scale ones, I'm making. I'm fabricating a model which I then get CNC'd right, larger. Right. Because you know, very very difficult to get the proportions right when you're working on such a large scale. So the piece I've just finished in Rome last last year was over twenty meters long. And I couldn't have physically carved that mm. um, and, and kept the geometry right of it. So I'd made, a, I made a, a model of the room and a model of a walkway, and it had to weave in and out of that walkway. And the only way we could do that really was to CNC it. But um, in, st still, the work was in here for two months, feathering. And it. when you're talking about carving, what are you carving? You're not, you're not going to, you're shaking your head, you're not going to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So that remains a secret. Yes. Okay. Okay. But it must be incredibly laborious, the feathering process. Yeah, but laborious and wonderful all the same. I mean, I'm sure with a lot of the, the people that you've talked to, it, it's a labour intensive mm. um, thing. And I really enjoy that. And I, my happiest days, in fact, you're invading my making days. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> are a Thursday and a Friday when I don't have anyone else in the studio and I'm able to sit and listen to an audio book or a podcast or whatever. And, and I just sit here and make. And that is nice. That's kind of meditative. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I will work on a piece like this really intensely. And I can't remember making it. I, right. You know, I sort of, it's sort of, I get enveloped in doing it, but I'm, I'm away with fairies. <laughs> I think Richard Sennett described it as a, um, a relaxed concentration. Yeah, yes. I mean, the, the, listening to an audio book, for example, is you don't get involved with emails coming in and that sort of thing. You can just sort of park that bit. And because that is, I find I don't get enough work done 
on days when there's tons coming mm. coming in and I just mm. have to switch off and turn my phone off effectively. Can we talk about the way that you name your pieces? They have these very strong, again, slightly unsettling names often, like gag, taunt, discharge, purge, secrete. Uh, are you coming up with the name before you start the piece or when does it arrive in the process? So often I'm working on the piece and I'm, I'm jotting names down. Um, so I rarely start, and often the words are quite difficult to come by. Um, I, I try and choose um, words that are bodily, but also have more than one meaning. So, for example, with, with my wishbone piece, brood, um, you've got the, the collective term for looking after um, a bird. Mm. The, the, the collective, um, the chicks, is a brood. Um, if you think about things, you brood on them. Um, so there's, you know, and it's often a dark. If you're brooding, it's it's a dark feeling, isn't it? It's not a it's not a happy um, thing. And then, um, so I'm just trying to think of other. So gag would be a joke, but it also is to be sick mm. and is also to be muffled. So I, I don't like to have titles that will close the meaning down. I want titles that will confuse you in a sense that makes you, well, what does that, what element of gag does that actually mm. mean? What is, um, you know, what's she trying to get to? And I don't want to tell you what to think. I want you to think and to read into it. There's also a slightly erotic undertone to some yeah. of this, right? Yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah unfortunately um often it happens i'm i'm making something and i don't intend to make it sexual at all and then i'll stand away and somebody will say oh kate you know so and i realize i've done it again with that without it none of it is intentional but it's obviously rather innate which is wonderful and slightly embarrassing at times <laughs> i mean i'm intrigued kate because you came up with the the feathers work at a time, uh, kind of in the fine art world, where there seemed to be a lot of taxidermy going on, Polly yes. Morgan, and yes. I've seen you in yes. programmes kind of lumped together with, yes. with these artists. I mean, mm. does that bother you? Were you happy with that? Were you aware even it was going on when you were...? Well, I do get a lot of people saying to me, um, you know, oh, I really love your work. Oh, fantastic. Do you know Polly Morgan? <laughs> so, I mean, I do know Polly and I like her um, a great deal and I admire her work, but I don't see it as being the same thing mm. at all. And um, and I don't really want my work to be looked at as being as as a form of taxidermy because it really I wouldn't know how to taxidermy and mm. a bird save my life, you know. It's not the same arena. I'm making an abstract form from... A natural material it's it's I'm hoping it goes a bit further than that mm. Mm. so I mean tell me you've obviously got the work happening in Leeds coming mm. up mm. Um, what else can we expect so I'm um, this year is this the coming year is going to be really busy the piece I'm working on here is going to an exhibition in Paris uh, for during FIAC it's an all um, um exhibition during FIAC and then I've got work going uh, that has just been picked up this morning that's going to the Palais Ideal, which is in Lyon, um, which is a sort of naive art. I don't know if you know about this this strange 
building that was built by a postman that collected stones on no, his route. It's just amazing. It looks like something out of Indonesia or something. He's made these towers and things. So a piece of work's gone off to that, and that's going to be shown with Rebecca Horn's work. Okay. Is it just coincidence that they're both in France? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and then I've got a work going to um, Czechoslovakia for another exhibition. Um, what else is coming up? I'm making a, a large site-specific installation for a private client. And then I'm working with the Hans Christian Andersen Museum in um, Copenhagen. Um, and Harvard House in Leeds in, uh, for March. So I'm, I'm completely booked up now for the next year. So you're busy? Really busy. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for sparing us the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My I, pleasure. I think, Kate, that was wonderful. Thank you oh, very good. much. Good. <laughs> I think we're done. Thank you. Good. Not too many aeroplanes. And to learn more about Kate Maguire's work, go to katemaguire.com. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this from and go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. And finally, thank you so much to this episode's sponsor, Sarah Myerskoff Gallery. Do check out her new space in Barnes. It's full of wonderful work from some brilliant designers, makers and artists. Visiting is a genuine joy. And go see the gallery at Pad Fair in London and Salon Fair in New York. For more information, go to www.sarahmyerskoff.com. Thanks very much for listening.